Welcome to MedSider, where you can learn from experienced medical device and med tech experts through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. All right, hello everyone, it's Scott Nelson, and welcome to another episode of MedSider, the show where I interview med tech and medical device thought leaders, and on today's program, we've got Hugh Narciso, who is the founder and president of Barrow Nova. Let me tell you a little bit more about Hugh before we dig into the interview. Uh, prior to founding Barrow Nova back in 2006, Hugh has held uh, several senior executive positions or served on the board of directors at a variety of companies, uh, some of those including Leptos, Biomedical, Lambda Pharmaceuticals, I'm ho- I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Core Vascular Surgical Systems, uh, Mirabant Medical Technologies. Hugh also is a named inventor on more than 30 U.S. patents. So pretty impressive resume. Thanks for coming on the program, Hugh. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. All right, so um, we'll dig in here in a second, but I did want to let everyone know that this interview is sponsored by Touch Surgery. Now, in full disclosure, I'm an employee of Touch Surgery, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, as we uh, as we progress here in the interview with Hugh. Uh, but in, in short, Touch Surgery um, is a company that makes an app that is free to download on the App Store or the Google Play Store, completely free, uh, and it's designed for physicians, surgeons, healthcare providers, to learn and practice uh, procedures, surgical procedures, anytime, anywhere. So if you're interested, just go to touchsurgery.com and you'll find the link to download the free app. Um, All right, so Hugh, let's get started. Um, You founded, as I mentioned just now, you founded uh, Baronova back in 2006. It's now early 2016, a full 10 years later. That's a long time, I think, from anyone's uh, perspective. Let's let's start with kind of how you're feeling uh, about how your your position now, um, especially uh, against you know sort of entrenched uh, incumbents like uh, like Allergan with the with the lap band procedure, as well as just other other startups that are kind of in that in that same space like GI Dynamics and Aeromedics. Let's start there. Okay, well um, you know we're we're pretty happy about where we are as a company. Like you said, uh, we founded the company in 2006 and. We've accomplished quite a bit. Uh, we've been through a couple of human clinical trials, including our most recent one, which we conducted in Sydney, Australia. Now, in that trial, we demonstrated a fairly significant level of, of weight loss in those patients. And uh, you know, just to give you an example, at, at the six-month time point, the average weight loss for our patients who had BMIs between 30 and 40 was about 14.9% total body weight loss. So if you take the weight of the patient and uh, you subtract about 15% of their weight, that's what they achieved in in six months. And if you look at comparable uh, obesity trials, that's a a pretty large number. So, you know, we're we're very happy where we are in our clinical results. We're we're continuing to develop the the product. The Transpilaric Shuttle is the name of our device. And... uh, you know, compared to companies like um, Reshape, Apollo, GI Dynamics, and um, you know, those guys are all trailblazers, and and you know, they've they've uh, uh, set the standard with uh, their regulatory approvals, and you know, we appreciate all that they've done for the the space of obesity, and uh, you know, we're just going to follow in their wake and hopefully have a successful pivotal trial, and then we look forward to competing with them in uh, in the market. 
once we get those approved. Got it. Well, yeah, it certainly helps to. Uh, certainly, uh, I'm not sure if you consider yourself a, a fast follower, but uh, certainly helps to follow in uh, in uh, you know uh, along a path that other other folks have helped to blaze. So I certainly can appreciate that. Um, so let, let's. I know you mentioned a couple different things that I want to. I want to uh, discuss uh, the trial in Australia. Uh, as well as your pivotal trial uh, that you're starting, I'm not sure entirely how much you can discuss with your your, your U.S. pivotal trial, um, but let's let's start with the actual device. You mentioned um, that I, I think it's often often referred to as the TPS device. Um, give us a, give us a, a high sort of a high level overview of, of the device, as well as um, sort of the the, the the disease state you're you're trying to you're you're aiming to treat. I know you mentioned it's, it's an obesity related device. Um, and then how, how it maybe compares to other, other devices that, that physicians would, would use in, in today's market. Sure. So our, our TPS is an endoscopic device, and so that means that there's no surgery required to deliver or retrieve the device. So it's a completely endoscopic procedure, both on delivery and, and retrieval. And uh, what we demonstrated in that Australian study was that the level of weight loss that I previously referred to was actually superior to the weight loss that you see in a similar study conducted by Allergan for the, when they did their low BMI trial. Um, now, you know, your audience may or may not know, but the lap band is a surgical procedure, so there's, there's surgery involved in that procedure. So since there's no surgery involved in our procedure, if you can get surgical levels of weight loss without the need for surgery, we think we've got a, you know, a pretty good competitive advantage once we, uh, we get to market with, with our device. Now maybe we can maybe we can talk a little bit mechanistically how we're working. So this device that we deliver endoscopically, we in effect we build it in your stomach. So we send it down in a uh, deconstructed fashion, and then uh, by engaging a few uh, um, levers and pulleys in in the delivery system, we're able to construct it in the stomach. And and what you end up with is it's a ball. Uh, probably a little bit smaller than a tennis ball with a tail on the end of it. And the way that it functions is because of its shape and its size, that tail wants to go across the outflow of the stomach, which is the pylorus. Um, so it crosses that valve, and the tail sits in the, in the intestine, the, the duodenum. And the, the, the ball will sit in the stomach. And so our device was designed to work in concert with your own physiology. So a lot of technologies try to fight the physiology. Ours was designed to work with your physiology. So there's a thing called peristalsis, which it, it, it's a, a series of contractions and relaxation of, of muscles that forces food from the stomach into the intestine and then down the intestinal tract. And so when that wave, which starts at the top of the stomach, starts to squeeze down on the stomach, it'll actually push our device down into the outflow of the stomach, the pylorus, and it'll intermittently block that valve. So the wave pushes our device into place, and when the wave passes over our device, it'll, it'll pop it out. It pops up a little bit out of the, the pylorus, kind of like a watermelon seed will pop uh, uh, you know, uh, when you squeeze it between your fingers. And so once that device pops up, it allows food to, to pass around it. And then the next wave comes along and pushes our device back in place. So it's your own physiology, this peristalsis, which creates the shuttling motion of our device, okay. and that's why we call it a transpyloric shuttle. And by shuttling back and forth, we intermittently block the outflow of your stomach so the patient will fill up quicker and stay full longer. And it's really that simple. That's, that's the mechanism that we think we're operating under. 
Got it. And that's delivered entirely through an endoscopic approach. Correct. Got it. And you said it's sort of constructed in place. So sort of, the, am I right in saying the, the, the parts are, are delivered through an endoscope and then the physician would actually build it sort of in place within the, within the stomach? So they're not delivered through the endoscope. The endoscope is there to visualize the process at, at various points in the, in the delivery procedure. But we've got our own catheter that is okay. uh, delivered through the mouth, down the esophagus, and into the stomach. And like I alluded to earlier, you know, by uh, turning a couple of cranks, what you end up doing is you engage some strings, which then engage some locks, uh, and ultimately you lock the device in place. And by locking it, that's what I call constructing the device in your stomach. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, and, and this question actually came from, from our audience, uh, what, you know, someone from the MedSider audience, Ted Jordan with Stellar Technologies. Not overly familiar with Stellar Technologies, but uh, he asked, he wanted to, he wanted to ask you uh, in preparation for this interview, how does a physician then remove the, the implant after the, you know, the patient loses the desired amount of, of weight? Can you answer that question? Sure. So, again, it's an endoscopic procedure, so there's no surgery involved in, in uh, either aspect, delivery or retrieval of our product. So the physician would go down with a, a normal endoscope, and you know, uh, typically endoscopes have working channels, so we use devices that go through those channels that are well-known to gastroenterologists and surgical endoscopists, things like uh, you know, snares or graspers. And what we do is we put a, a, a grasper down the, the central channel of the scope, and with the scope allows you to visualize where the device is. And right on the top of that ball that I earlier described, there's a release mechanism. So what you do is you grab onto that release mechanism, you pull that back up against the, the uh, well, we, we retrieve it through a, an overtube. You pull that, that device up to the overtube and apply a little pressure. And what that does is it releases the, there are four locks in the device. So it releases all four of those locks. And once the locks are released, the device can be deconstructed, uh, basically the opposite uh, uh, of what we do when we construct it. And that silicone is then pulled out through the overtube. Okay, cool, cool. That, as you described that, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, thinking, or it sounds very familiar to like an IDC filter removal. And, and you know maybe that's because I, I spent most of my my career in the uh, in the vascular space, but uh, that concept of sort of uh, you know grasping onto a hook and sort of retrieving the implant out of a out of a uh, you know out of a, a vessel or in this case the uh, you know the stomach sounds sounds fairly familiar. Right. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Uh, all right. Sounds good. And uh, um, Ted, uh, if you're listening, thanks for. Uh, Thanks for sending that question. And if if if, um, if other folks want to ask questions in advance of the interviews, just uh, just go to MedSider and subscribe to the email newsletter. I typically uh, typically send out um, uh, information in advance of who I who I'll be interviewing next. Uh, that way, you uh, have a chance to ask any questions that uh, uh, that you uh, that you have for for the, for the guests here on the program. Um, so so Hugh, thanks for thanks for that overview of the device. Hopefully, that gives everyone a good a good a, you know at least somewhat of a feeling for. For what you're what you're uh, what you're building uh, there at Baranova, but let's go back to kind of the pre 2006 before uh, before you founded founded the company. You spent time uh, with some of those other startups that I mentioned in the intro: Miravant Medical, uh, Core Vascular, Leptos Biomedical. You know, when you think about your early time there, um, you know that's, this is well over 10 years ago now. But 
there, I got to think that there's probably some some mentors that you had, some some folks that in, in place that you were, uh, you know, that you learned quite a bit from. Um, can you speak to some of those experiences that 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 you learned along the way um, that uh, that would be helpful for you know for those folks listening that are that are early in their in their med tech careers? Sure. So, uh, well, you know, more than ten years ago, I had a lot less gray hairs, so uh, <laughs> I miss those days. Uh, but I, you know, I've had I've had the good fortune to work with some uh, you know some very knowledgeable and uh, you know great great mentors. And uh, you know they know the medical device uh, industry. They know the the pharma industry. You know I've spent some time doing both uh, med tech and biotech. And uh, you know I've had the uh, the good fortune of of uh, you know being under the tutelage of people who are willing to allow me to uh, to you know expand my capabilities, but while also doing that to instill the passion uh, that's that's obviously required. To, to succeed in, in any business. So, you know, I, I think a lot of it is luck. So, you know, I like I said, I had the good fortune to work with people who, um, you know, took an interest in my career and allowed me to, uh, you know, expand and, and learn from my mistakes and my successes. So uh, uh, hopefully that answers the question. Yeah, and, and, and is, there, is there anything that you, that you remember or that you specifically did to sort of foster that type of relationship where, you, where some of these some of these industry veterans that sort of helped you along, they they were, that you know that where, where they became a little bit more open and, and willing to you know to invest some time in you. Is there well, any I mean, I always made any, it clear to to my managers and and my mentors that uh, you know what I was doing, you know, I, I enjoyed learning what I was doing, but you know, once I had gotten proficient in that area, that I always wanted to take on more, and so mm-hmm. they were always willing to, you know. Uh, feed me as fast as I could uh, could could take on new things and and you know do it responsibly but you know do it successfully. So yeah. you know it's really just kind of pushing the envelope throughout your career and you know when I, I mentioned in the last question you've got to have passion for what you're doing and so you know if you have that passion then you, you know you're willing to work the extra hours to to you know kind of accomplish what you need to accomplish and learn what you need to learn. Got it. And I think uh, you know I'm. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm making a hunch here, uh, but I'm guessing your, your passion, you know, 10-plus years ago was, pro- was probably fairly contagious, which, which probably opened, opened, uh, opened the doors to, to relationships with those, with those around you. So just take a guess, but uh, I have a feeling my hunch is probably right. So I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, like, like, we, uh, like we discussed here earlier in the conversation, you've been at, you know, at this, you know, much more than 10 years, but barely over specifically 10 years. I mean, you've got to have you've got to have a lot of passion for what you're doing in order to, to make that work. So um, very cool. So on, on that same sort of note, speaking of kind of the early days of, of Baranova, what sort of, what sort of drew you to, the, to the, this uh, gastroenterology or sort of the, the, the obesity uh, market? Was there something in particular? Well, before we founded Baranova, I had spent some time with Leptos Biomedical, and, and Leptos was a company developing uh, neurostim technology to treat obesity. So that was my introduction to obesity, and, <clears throat> you know, obviously everyone knows it's a very large market. It's probably, <laughs> if not the biggest, one of the biggest, uh, you know, medical opportunities that, that's out there, and there are a lot of ways to attack it. So Neurostim was one way to attack it, but, um, you know, when my time was coming to a close at Leptos as they decided to uh, relocate the company, 
I was approached by um, my co-founder in Baranova, uh, uh, Dr. Dan Burnett. And Dan Burnett is one of these serial entrepreneurs. And uh, actually, probably a better description is he's a, a parallel entrepreneur because he's probably got you know five or six or seven uh, venture-backed companies that are have started up or are you know in operation right now. And uh, you know, Dan had this concept that he had developed while he was still at Duke Med School of the Transpilaric shuttle. And you know, his his early prototyping was quite different from what we have in the clinic right now, but the basic concept is still there. And, you know, I just thought it was a, a, a fantastic co- concept in that the, the simplicity of the approach is what makes it elegant, right? So it's easy to, to tell people, whether it's an investor or a doctor or a patient, you know, how this thing works. It, it basically works as, as a, a ball valve, an intermittent valve that we put in the outflow of your stomach that causes you to fill up quicker and stay full longer. So it's an easy story to tell, but it's it's an elegant story to tell. And when we took it into the clinic, you know, what we discovered was that these patients lost a lot of weight. And so, you know, we knew we had something there when, when these, uh, you know, early patients would, would lose a significant amount of weight. And again, we can do it all without the need for surgery. So, you know, it was a Got it. very exciting time. Yeah, got it. And, and you know, speaking of, you kind of hinted at it earlier with with uh, with respect to the fact that the the first the first prototype probably looked a lot a lot different than uh, you know the device that was that was studied in 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 your your, your study in Australia and then probably the you know maybe maybe different than the, even the one in, in your pivotal trial here in the U.S. But um, can you talk a little bit about how how you went from sort of initial initial idea or initial prototype to iterating on that idea based on on, on the feedback that you got in, in, in the trenches or in the market? Yeah, sure. So, you know, obesity is, is, is uh, you know, it's a challenging field. It's also a relatively new field. So it's not like cardiovascular disease where, you know, people have been not only developing products for cardiovascular disease, but they've been, in, uh, you know, in inventing animal models that will mimic what you see in the, the clinic. And I think one of the uh, the major Achilles heel for obesity right now is there's no large animal model that is very is predictive of what you you will see once you take your device from animal testing into the clinic. And so you know we can do all the testing, and you know we we did do a, a, a series of benchtop and animal testing on our device, but you never really know how it's going to work until the rubber hits the road. You know you take it into the human clinic. <coughs> Excuse me, the human clinic. And, you know, what we learned in those early trials was, hey, it's functioning as we designed it to, to function. So, you know, that, that's kind of the exciting point that, you know, there, there's the, the, the anticipation and then the nervousness about taking it into the clinic. You know, you, you've done all you can to make sure it's a safe device, but now you've got to find out if it's going to be an efficacious device. And so when we did that in our early trial and, and got the results that we got, you know, we were excited, and what that allowed to do, it allowed us to attract uh, an investor in our Series B, which was Allergan, who at the time was, you know, the world leader in devices for, for weight loss and obesity. Got it. And that Series B, that was back in 2008, is that right? Correct. Okay, got it. And and at that point in time, I, I am not uh, overly familiar with, with the space, but the was the lap band, the lap band was on the market at that point in time? Yeah, the lap band had probably been on the market for about five years by that point. 
Five years, okay. Okay, so Latman, maybe, if I've got my timing right, was maybe early 2000s, and then, you know, fast forward to 2008 in Allergy and become a, a strategic investor. Um, very good. So, so before we move on to sort of, you know, how you begin to build out your team at, at Baranova, um, what, you know, is there a certain methodology that, that, that you typically utilize or a framework that you utilize, uh, that you personally utilize or your team utilizes when it comes to, to making, you know, device iterations based on, you know, the feedback that, that, you, that you see in, you know, in animal labs or in, you know, in actual human, human trials? Well, it's important to have a, uh, a, a stable of, uh, you know, key opinion leaders. So, uh, you know, we've surrounded ourselves with some of the, the, the best and, and some world-famous uh, gastroenterologists and surgical endoscopists to help us with that process. Now, part of the problem is you can go to these KOLs and say, you know, um, what what should we develop? And at, if if you if you're too broad when you approach these people, you're you're not going to get the answer that you're looking for because basically what they want to do is they want to make, you know, a, a technology that they're familiar with. They want to make it a little bit better. And when we're talking about the TPS, we're talking about a technology that is very different than everything else that's out there. So they don't even know what's possible until you show them what's what's possible. And when we went them to them with the you know the original concept of the TPS, then the light bulb goes off in their head, and because they're very experienced clinicians, they say, okay, well you need it to do A, B, C, and D. And then you know we put our engineers in the room with the uh, with the KOLs, and uh, hopefully some magic happens. Got it. That, that's interesting that you said. I mean, when you initially maybe that's a, that's a piece of advice for other other med tech entrepreneurs or just other other folks that you know serve in some sort of R and D capacity. That you know when you're getting feedback from thought leaders or KOLs, you know within a certain therapeutic arena, that the goal is to get to go to them with a very specific sort of problem or a specific need. Would that be accurate? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it kind of goes back to I don't know if you've ever heard the uh, the quote by Henry Ford, but you know Henry Ford said that if I had listened to what the people wanted, I would have built a faster horse, mm -hmm. right? So we yep. didn't build a faster horse; we built you know the first car. So it was a very different concept, and it wasn't an improvement on something else that existed. It was a whole new concept. Got it. Yeah, I'm reminded also of, of the Steve Jobs quote as well, and I, I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't have the quote in front of me, but it's something to that, that, that same sort of effect where uh, I think the, 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 the theme of the topic or the theme of the quote was around, you know, focus groups, and he said, you know, you can't, you know, focus groups aren't necessarily, you know, worth it, it you know, because people don't always know what they want, you know, so I'm totally paraphrasing. I probably murdered that quote, but I think, I think, uh, I think we're on the same you know, you know, kind of at at, at the same sort of uh, same sort of concept there, right? I think so. Got it. Cool. Um, so let's talk, let's let's um, let's fast forward to, to to the team now. So you it, it's you and Dan in the early days of, of Baranova. How quickly did you begin to you know build out a team, and what did that look like? And I and I'm asking this because um, I, I remember an interview um, several years ago I did with Rui Mizaki, who's probably you know, could be described as maybe one of those parallel entrepreneurs, as you as you mentioned. Um, but he he mentioned how you know his team early on, um, I think it was in the, con in the sort of in the context of what would you do, what would he have done differently? And I think he said that now with his teams, he almost entirely, it's almost a, almost entirely a contract based team. 
in the early stages of a of a medtech startup. And so I'm curious, you know, when you look at kind of those those early days and beginning to form out a team at Baranova, is that the is that is that what you followed, or what what did that what did that look like? Yeah, so my philosophy throughout my career has always been to, uh, you know, to, to be capital efficient. So, you know, we were capital efficient before it was in vogue to, to, to be so. And what that means is, you know, you want to bring on core competency. I mean, you have to have some internal expertise because, like I said, the TPS was a new concept and, you know, we needed people inside the company that, that could develop that, that concept. You're never going to get the attention uh, and, and the, the dedication that you need to develop a, a new product by outsourcing that. But that being said, I think a lot of the other you know, peripheral activities within a company, especially early on, can be outsourced. There's enough excess capacity out there to do that, and, and that allows you to use a certain function when you need it and then you know, avoid paying for it when you don't need it. And, you know, one example would be, you know, our, our manufacturing. So when we took our Series A dollars, we raised enough money to, um, you know, develop the product, test it in animals, and then do a handful of, of patients in our first-in-man in trial. Well, to do all that, I mean, after we got through the prototyping and we, we, uh, we froze the design, you probably need, you know, less than 100 devices uh, to support your clinical trial, to support your, uh, your V&V testing, uh, and any other thing, any other needs for devices. Well, to build up a huge manufacturing facility and operation to build 100 devices that you're going to need over the next two years makes absolutely no sense. And there's plenty of capacity out there to access, uh, you know, people who have those skills to, to do that work for you. And, you know, I could probably come up with another five or six examples of, of functions within an early company that you can outsource. So, yeah, I mean, I would agree with... Uh, with, with your initial statement that you want to be, I won't call it virtual because, like I said, you do want that core competency, but being, you know, semi-virtual. Sure, sure. No, that, 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 that's a good example, uh, and, uh, and I think def definitely a lesson, a lesson learned, um, especially in an era where uh, uh, you would know this uh, much more than I, I would for sure, but, in a, you know, we're in an era where, um, you know, where medtech venture capital is not easy to raise, and capital efficiency is certainly a, certainly incredibly important. Uh, and I want to ask you a little bit about that uh, here in a second. Uh, but first, let's, let's talk a, a little bit more about the, the FDA, the regulatory environment, as well as, as, well as um, you know, insurance coverage and, uh, and, and reimbursement. You know, and I think, I think you would probably, correct me if I'm wrong, but you probably agree that the FDA does tend to take a lot of criticism when it comes to you know, slower regulatory times, although it seems like those are improving as of late. Um, you know, it looks like based on 2015, those may, may have improved a little bit. Um, but, you know, you're dealing with a, a PMA type of device, right, that, that's even, you know, going to require even more regulatory scrutiny, not to mention the fact that, um, you know, uh, insurance coverage and then insurance reimbursement is a whole nother, you know, represents a whole nother set of, uh, of challenges. So, you know, when you think about positioning the TPS device, you know, for eventual commercialization in the U.S., you know, are the things that you're doing now to help you um, sort of uh, fast track uh, those types of, uh, or help you overcome some, some of those challenges, you know, when it, when it comes to U.S. commercialization? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, let, let me start by, by uh, you know, agreeing with you. Over the, the 10 years that Baranova's been around, there's definitely been headwinds uh, and tailwinds uh, for, from, from the FDA. So, you know, uh, probably within the last, I don't know, three or four years, 
I would say that our group at the FDA um, has has modified their way of thinking, and they're very supportive uh, to, to companies like Baranova. Uh, I think a lot of that has to do with the leadership uh, in the group that reviews uh, our technology. It's uh, Dr. Herb Lerner, who's done a phenomenal job with uh, with that group at the FDA, and I think the FDA is using that as a model to extend to to other areas of, of specialty. So. Um, you know, but getting back to, to your question, you know, I've established a relationship with her uh, over the years, and, you know, I have the ability to pick up the phone and, and give them a call and say, look, this is what's going on within either our development area or within the clinic, and, and you know, how can we, we work through this process? So it's, a, it's, a, it's become a very iterative process and, and a very cooperative process with the FDA where if you had asked me this question six or seven years ago, I would have said that you know the FDA is is putting up uh, barriers that are so high that even the approved devices that were out at the time couldn't be approved, uh, you know, that day. So uh, sure. you know your your point is well taken. The the the, the regulatory environment, uh, the, the pendulum swings, and right now it's it's swung to a a, a cooperative direction, but. Uh, you know, getting an approval and and not having reimbursement or not addressing the the you know how people are going to pay for this technology is is just as important. Um, so you, it's almost like you can't take one without the other. They're they're inextricably intertwined. So um, you know what I would say about reimbursement is because Baranova is an endoscopic procedure performed on an outpatient basis, and the cost of the device is is relatively low. Compared to you know other technologies for for example neurostimulation for obesity, that you know we have the ability to uh, you know once we get our approval from the FDA to support a, a self-pay market. So you know it's it's probably similar to to LASIK uh, therapy, which which your audience may be familiar with. When you know LASIK first came out. It was something that uh, you know people would go in. Insurance wouldn't cover it, but but uh, you know they they would pay for it, and the companies would arrange for financing for you know to to support that approach. Now that being said, I think that's a short-term approach for us because uh, while initially when we when after we get approval and we launch our product, it it'll probably be into a self-pay market. I think there there is incentive for the third-party payers to pick up the cost of our device and procedure because if we can produce surgical levels of weight loss without the need for surgery, um, you know, that's kind of code for we can get surgical levels of weight loss with all the costs associated with surgery, I think the third-party payers are going to be um, you know, open to, to, to this approach. And so I think we, we take a dual track that while we're, we're gaining that, uh, you know, reimbursement uh, approvals that we will pursue a, a self-pay approach. Got it. Cool. So, so that that's an interesting that's an interesting path for sure. And it seems like more and more uh, med tech companies are are sort of keeping that sort of uh, sort of idea, that sort of that sort of path on the table, that sort of self pay approach, where you can initially launch a device into a market and expect patients to pay for it, especially as you know as copays and and, uh, and co insurance, you know, and, and deductibles, and <laughs> the more those increase over time. The more and more patients are paying, uh, you know, out of the pocket for certain procedures, for sure. So, um, but on that note, I want to ask you a kind of a follow-up question. 
even though that you, you, you maybe expect to launch into a self-pay market where patients are, are, are paying for this procedure um, with, with, uh, you know, with cash, are, you, are, are there activities that you're, you're doing now to, uh, or conversations you're having to help with an eventual, you know, eventual code or, or maybe you know, more specifically to help with coverage or reimbursement with, with third-party payers? Or do you see that happening down the road? Well, it, it's, it's, it's not that black and white. So, you know, we've tried to have the discussion with the third-party payers, and it's really not a fruitful discussion until, you know, you're, you're looking at, at, uh, at, at data, right? Got it. And okay. so I think we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but, you know, we've just initiated our U.S. Pivotal trial, which is a randomized, controlled, double-blinded trial. And so those data are going to be very pivotal in, in uh, the assessment of the third-party payers on whether there's a there there, right? But uh, I think what we can do right now is we're, we're establishing the relationships with our, um, you know, obesity society uh, heads, which you really need to, to find people to carry your banner to the AMA to ultimately get the, uh, the, the reimbursement codes that you're looking for. So right now, the obesity societies are very aware of what we're doing. Uh, they're keeping an eye on what we're doing. We make sure we share our data with, with the societies. So when it's time for them to pick up the banner and, and you know, sing our song to the, uh, to the people that are responsible for coding, uh, I think we'll be prepared. Got it. Very good, very good. So I want to I want to uh, talk about you know your your recent Series D and then as well as kind of the you know the the, the pivotal trial or at least a t you know touch on the pivotal trial uh, for you know uh, share what you can because uh, I know it's going to be somewhat limited as, as to what you can share. But uh, but before I go there, I, I did mention that this interview is sponsored by by Touch Surgery. Again, in full disclosure, I'm an employee of, of Touch Surgery. Uh, but uh, but really, for, for anyone listening, you should really really check check us out. Go to touchsurgery.com touch surgery and. And really, um, I would encourage you to take the next step and download the free app. Um, completely free. Just register with, with your email address. And really, it, it's very cool. I mean, what we're doing is we're building out um, uh, surgical procedures, um, or really any type of procedure, interventional, surgical, open surgical, et cetera, building those out uh, in, in a, on a mobile platform, a truly mobile platform. So the concept is that um, a physician, any, any, any healthcare provider for that matter, um, instead of having to, you know, to fly to a course, uh, to, you know, read through some sort of PowerPoint deck, et cetera, they can, instead, they can learn and then practice through interactive uh, procedures on their, on their mobile device. So whether it's an iPhone, an iPad, you know, an Android-based Android tablet, et cetera, you can pull it out any, 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 you know, anytime, anywhere, 24-7, and learn and practice uh, uh, procedures. And then what's, what's even more unique is you can test yourself against, uh, you know, against what you know or what you practiced. As well, so very cool app. I encourage everyone to, to check it out. So um, again, touchsurgery.com. Just uh, just click on the links to download the Android uh, the Android version or the the version that's uh, that's on on top of iOS. So um, anyway, uh, back to back to our discussion, Hugh. Um, you recently uh, again, I mentioned this earlier in the intro. You recently raised your Series D. So congrats on that. I think it was a, a thirty. What was it? It was reported at least to be a, you know over thirty million dollars. So very cool to see. Um, uh, very, very cool to see you guys do that. Um, so before we get into, into into what you're doing with the clinical trial here in the U.S., uh, let's talk about sort of the, your experiences with with fundraising. Uh, I know your 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 Series B was uh, was back in 2008. Series D, you know, late late 2015, et cetera. 
Um, so are there, are, are there some major lessons that you learned, you know, maybe with respect to, you know, your, your early fundraising versus your, kind of your late-stage fundraising? And then also, uh, I want to get your take on that. And also, you know, you've got, you've got uh, you know, you, you were able to raise money with both corporate, uh, corporate entities as well as private, uh, private venture capital firms. So I want to get your take on that. So maybe let's start with the, you know, the, the differences between your early and late stage rounds and then also get into the kind of the corporate versus private VC uh, topic as well. Yeah, so, you know, I would say that, you know, Series A and Series B is more about the promise of, of the technology. Um, I think Series C and Series D is more about execution. So, you know, by the time you get to Series C and Series D, you have to prove that you use the previous dollars raised in, in a responsible way, hopefully efficient and effective way. Uh, you know, Baranova has, uh, we've had the good fortune to be able to attract uh, many of the the blue chip uh, healthcare venture groups to invest in us. And we've also uh, received investments both from Allergan, who I think I mentioned earlier was, at the time of the investment, they were the, the world leader in, uh, in devices, medical devices for weight loss. Uh, since then, they sold their obesity franchise to Apollo. Uh, and we've also received an investment from Boston Scientific, and you know Boston, while they're not uh, actively involved in obesity, you know they've got uh, you know a, a pretty mature uh, endoscopic group where you know this white space technology could fit into to that group at at some point. So you know I think our clinical data has been validated by uh, by these uh, you know these professional medical device manufacturers. Uh, so, uh, you know, kind of getting back to your your point, there's there's a little difference between early fundraising and late fundraising. But uh, you know, you, you, by the time you get to see, you've got to have a track record that uh, yeah that people can invest in. Yeah, I like yeah, what was the analogy you used? The, the differences between A and B, and then like you know maybe uh, D and E is is you know A and B's A and B rounds are, are based on the promise, and C and D rounds are based on the the data. That's that's a a pretty helpful description. For sure. Um, so, so can you can you discuss um, you know the, the differences your your experiences dealing with both private venture capital firms as well as as well as corporate venture? Because certainly there's uh, there's been uh, you know uh, I'm sure you'll you know you'll get a different opinion depending on who you talk to with respect to working with with both both parties, uh, especially especially uh, with with corporate corporate venture uh, venture arms. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I mean, if you probably uh, interviewed ten CEOs, you'd get five that fully support corporate partnerships and five that absolutely hate them. So, um, you know, I come from the experience of uh, I've had very good relationships with, with corporate partners, and that's both from the med tech world and from, from pharma. So I think that, uh, you know, if you, if you get the right person that is your champion within the company and the company values the, uh, the indication and the approach that you're taking to to you know, deal with that unmet medical need. Uh, you know, I think the motivations are all in the right place. And you know, I've had the good fortune to work with with some great BD people, some great corporate development people. And you know, I, I can give you an example. When Allergan made their investment, they put uh, a gentleman, uh, David Lawrence, on our on our uh, on our board. And David was great. David understands obesity. He uh, obesity can be uh, a, a nuanced specialty, and he really understood the the nuances of obesity. 
He also understood the uh, the challenges of uh, operational issues, uh, even with a development stage company, and having that voice kind of balance out the uh, the, the approach of the the venture capitalists was very valuable to to Baranova, and I think we had a you know a very functional value added board to have both the corporate perspective and the venture perspective uh, sitting in the same room. Yeah. That's that's helpful. That's helpful, and um, certainly very uh, very cool that it, that it worked out uh, so well with you. Um, and I I got I, I got to think that as you as you just mentioned, um, you know uh, this gentleman um, by the name of David Lawrence at, at Allergan. I'm not sure if he's still there, but uh, um, that the fact that he knew so much or was you know he he understood the space that you were you were offering within. I got to think that that helps that helps a lot for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. So, so cool. So before we get into the kind of the, the last three questions, it's probably one of my one of my most you know favorite favorite parts of the the interview, which is a little bit more personal in nature. Um, let's talk about uh, you know what's what's next for for Baranova. You know, you you mentioned the the, the pivotal study that that uh, that that uh, you're working on for the U.S. Maybe talk about that, and then and then you know finish it up with you know for for physicians that that are wanting to you know learn learn a little bit more about the device or are 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 considering you know you know ways to treat. Uh, Treat this uh, this patient subset, you know, in the future. Why, you know, why should they consider uh, consider TPS the TPS device? Um, sure. So the first part you want me to cover is what? Yeah, sure. So so maybe just talk about the the US trial first, if, you know, for anything that you can share, um, okay. and then and then just kind of finish it up with with uh, you know maybe the the unique things that are that, that make the TPI TPS device uh, different. Okay, so the we just initiated our U.S. pivotal trial, and I think your audience probably knows that the pivotal trial is, you know, the final trial that you conduct to to gain FDA approval. Um, mm -hmm. I can't say much about it. Uh, I, I can't say much about it, mostly because it's a double-blinded trial, and I don't know much information about it. So I'm blinded to uh, to the the trial also. So, but I can tell you how it was structured. So it, uh, as I mentioned, it was a randomized controlled trial. So we've got some patients receiving our device, some patients that receive a sham procedure, so they think they have the device. And uh, it was randomized uh, two-to-one treatment to control group. Um, the, the goal is to put the device into uh, about uh, 270 patients. Uh, so that means 180 will get the device, 90 will be in the control group, and to uh, leave the device in for one year. So we wanted to differentiate ourselves from uh, some balloon technology where uh, due to materials they need to remove the device after about six months. Um, we're going to leave our device in for one year. Now, it should be noted that there's nothing in the materials or the mechanics of our device that would prevent it from living in the stomach for two, three, five years. We just need to prove that. And for a startup company to bite off a three-year or a five-year clinical trial right out of the chute just doesn't make sense. So the plan would be to get the approval at one year of residence time in the patient and then get subsequent approvals to expand that indication out to two years and, and multiple years after that. But it should also be noted that in that trial, we're treating patients that are 30 to 40 BMI, which is considered the, um, you know, a, a low BMI uh, clinical trial. Uh, but, 
But that doesn't mean that we couldn't ultimately treat patients that are above 40. What we saw in our Sydney trial was that patients above 40 lost the same percentage of weight as the patients between uh, 30 and 40. So, you know, if, if you're an above 40 BMI patient and you lose 15% of your total weight, you're going to lose a lot more weight than someone who's a 32 BMI. But on a percentage basis, it seems to work the same independent of, of BMI. Now, once we, we expand uh, north on the BMI scale, there's nothing preventing us from expanding south on the BMI scale for overweight patients. There's a, a cosmetic indication that, that we could pursue where, you know, people who are overweight and want to lose weight for some specific reason, such as, you know, they've got a wedding coming up or, you know, they want to look uh, look good on the beach in the summertime, there's, there's the opportunity to... You know, treat those uh, those subjects with uh, a shorter term device. You know, maybe put it in in January and take it out in April. Uh, you know, there, there's that opportunity for patients for overweight patients, a cosmetic indication who you know want want that uh, that benefit. There's also the diabetes indication. So, uh, you know, people are familiar with the weight loss associating associated with improving your type 2 diabetes. So just by losing weight, you get the secondary effect of improving your your um, your diabetic condition, either uh, eliminating the meds you're on or at least reducing the dosage. Well, we think that in addition to the secondary effect of diabetes, we're going to have a primary effect on, on diabetes. So if you remember early in our conversation, we, we said that the mechanism that we think we're operating under is slowed gastric emptying. So the food moves from the stomach into the intestine in a slower manner. So if you think about that, if, if the calories are moving from the stomach into the intestine slower, you aren't necessarily changing the amount of glucose that gets released into the bloodstream, but you're doing it over a longer period of time. And when you stretch that time out, the effect is you reduce the glucose peaks. And if you reduce the glucose peaks, that's exactly what you want to do in a diabetic patient. So we think there's a primary uh, uh, effect, uh, there's the potential, at least, of the primary effect of our device for the diabetic patients. So we're very excited about pursuing a trial in that area once we get our initial approvals. And lastly, another area we're very excited about is adolescent obesity. There really is nothing for the adolescent obese population right now, and, and you know, you just have to open up the New York Times probably daily to see an article on the, uh, you know, the, the, the effects of adolescent obesity. So because our device is completely reversible, you can put it in and, and take it out, you don't have to worry about the effects of the device on a, on a growing individual, whereas if you were suturing something in place or, or changing the plumbing like you do with some of the more radical bariatric surgeries, uh, you know, you'd have to worry about that. So in our case, we can get the effect of, of our device, remove it, and then the adolescent can can move into adulthood and either you know maintain their weight loss or if they need some intervention, uh, whether it's another one of our devices or surgery, uh, you know when they become adults, they've got all the options in front of them that they had before. And so I think all those reasons together, uh, you know, make physicians very interested in in what we're doing because we can treat a broad band of of their population because they get you know all types of, of obese patients into their practices. And I think they're they're very excited when we, we talk about these potentials. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I really didn't have any idea of those, those I'm glad you mentioned those those three other sort of uh 
avenues that you could pursue um, as well. I, you know, the, the, the cosmesis avenue is certainly interesting, you know, where uh, uh, because your device is removable, someone could realistically have it, you know, to get, to get ready for the, the beach weather. I don't, you know, I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, but it's kind of, you know, it, it, it could be a, a market, but the, you know, that the, the, the diabetes, uh, the ability to treat uh, diabetic patients as well, that's, that's very cool, and I guess if anyone's familiar with I understood what you're, what you, what you, how you were describing sort of the, uh, the way your device functions, it'd be the equivalent of, you know, why it's more healthy to eat, you know, a long chain carbohydrate because your body digests it slower, thereby preventing, you know, those, those, those uh, glucose peaks, those insulin peaks, um, which can be dangerous for diabetic patients. So very cool. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons I love MedTech so much. You know, I, I'm, you know, if you, if you kind of put yourself in the shoes of a, of a patient, I'm sure you do this, you know, quite a bit, but. Um, but you know, instead of instead of that patient being on some sort of lifelong or prolonged, you know, you know, taking a uh, you know a drug, you know, for a prolonged period of time, or maybe in some cases, you know, a lot, you know, for for the for the the course of their life, you know, they can take they, they can utilize a you know a device like like yours, you know, for a temporary period of time. So uh, it's one of the reasons I I, I like MedTech. It's it's uh it's, it's very cool from that perspective. So um, very good. Well, and, the, and you are, if I could just make oh, one comment for obesity, yeah. I, I think that. This is really a disease that is is best treated with a device as opposed to drugs because what we've seen with the drug studies is not only do you have the effects of a systemic drug on all the systems within the body, so you've got all these you know cardiac effects and and you know you you can go down the list of of the drugs, but what you see with drug studies is even the ones that are fairly effective, the body habituates to them within the first you know nine to twelve months. And once the body habituates, it, it, the body's an amazing thing. It, it finds another pathway around it, and you'll see that, that the patients regain their weight. So I think with a device like ours where you can leave the device in place for a relatively long period of time, get some success, pull the device out, if you fall off the wagon, like I said earlier, you've got all the options in front of you. You can get surgery. You can get another one of our devices. You can get one of the competitive devices put in because you, you haven't changed anything about your anatomy. You're not all in like you would be with, with Rune-Y surgery. Got it. Yeah, it's, 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 very, it's very, very cool uh, the way that, that, you know, you leave your options sort of open, uh, certainly. So um, very, very exciting, very exciting for, uh, for, uh, for Baranova. Congrats on, on all the work, here, work you, uh, you guys have done, you and your team have done there. Uh, very exciting time. It's always good to hear... Uh, know some, some some success stories you know in medtech like like Baranova. so uh, before we end here last three questions uh, very short questions but a little bit more more personal in nature uh, so first you what's your uh, what's your favorite nonfiction business book uh, well I'm a bit of a dinosaur so my, my favorite nonfiction biz- business book is an oldie but a goodie it's uh, built to last I don't know if you you're familiar with that book but yeah uh, it was written by some guys out of Stanford, and and what they did is they they did this comparative analysis of of a series of uh, competitive company pairs. So they would take, you know, two two uh, companies within an industry and go through their history and and find out why one was successful and why or why one was more successful than the other one. And it's uh, it, it's pretty informative on uh, you know what works and what doesn't work and and how you do build something to last. Cool. So built to last. So next question: Is there a business leader, or maybe a another, you know, founder or CEO that you're following right now, or maybe one that really inspires you? Uh, 
well, maybe not necessarily a business leader, but uh, I would say closely related. Uh, a political leader who inspired me and still inspires me to this day is, is Ronald Reagan. This was a man with clear, uh, critically formed ideas, plainly communicated, who had the ability to per- persuade his opponents to uh, to support his policies. You know, it's it's easy to uh, to convince your own troops uh, or people that are on your side to to go your way, but you know, a true leader can get uh, people from the other side to to pull with you in the same direction. So, uh, Reagan's uh, Reagan's my hero. Very cool. Good answer. Uh, and then lastly, uh, when thinking about your med tech career, and then even even uh, even what you, even the successes that you've experienced uh, here at Baranova, especially as a, as a, as of late, what's the one piece of advice that you tell your uh, your thirty year old self? Well, if I could talk to my thirty year old self, I would tell myself, go into software development. <laughs> Good answer. Uh, good answer. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll leave it at that, uh, and let uh, let let the audience sort of uh, you know take that for what it's worth. But um, uh, this has been a, a really enjoyable conversation. Uh, Hugh, would, would, is the best place to to direct people if they want to learn more about about Baranova is, is your website? Is that the best? Yeah, place? that'd be great. Uh, www.baranova.com. Baranova, B-A-R-O-N-O-V-A, and of course we'll link to that in the. Uh, in the show notes uh, uh, for this for this interview on MedSider.com. So, uh, again, Hugh, uh, thanks thanks a ton for doing this. I'll ask you to hold on here before uh, before I uh, uh, before I we, we we hang up. But uh, again, thanks for thanks for taking some time and, and sharing your uh, your experiences uh, 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 over the course of your career as well as as well as those with, uh, with founding uh, Baranova. Well, I appreciate the time and I appreciate you uh, you know reaching out to Baranova. Cool. All right, uh, that's it uh, for now, folks. Until the uh, the next episode of MedSider, um, everyone uh, take care.